Oh, that's right. Welcome, everybody, to the show. This is Eric Wright. I'm the host of the Disco Posse podcast. We've got something really cool. This features Dan Burkaw, who's the CEO and co-founder of NAMI.ML. So NAMI is about machine learning and making sure that they can really do fantastic stuff about increasing your likelihood of generating subscriptions. They take care of all the feeding and care that's needed, uh, but we have a lot of really cool stuff that we cover with this. Before we jump in though, I wanna give a shout out to the fantastic folks who make this show possible. So please do check out everything you need for your data protection needs, which you can get from Veeam Software. Veeam Software, not only are they doing really cool stuff just about day-to-day operational backups and restores as needed, because it's got to restore, not just back it up. Whether it's on-premises, in virtualization, bare metal, out in the cloud, use their cast and platform in order to back up your cloud-native stateful applications, Office 365, Slack, Teams, maybe not Slack, I can't remember. But anyways, the point is, back all those things up because you never know, as they say in the Cinderella song, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And with Veeam, it's not gone. It's safe and protected, so make sure you go to V ee.am forward slash disco posse and check it out again go to vee.am forward slash disco posse to find out more okay next up uh i'm a co-founder of an amazing little firm called diabolical coffee so diabolical coffee is not only is it the most devilishly tasty coffee you can get around but on top of that we have diabolically awesome swag that goes if you go to diabolicalcoffee.com and use code DISCOPOSSE at the checkout. Number one, you get a wee bit of a discount, so you get a little bit of a taste off the top. As well, proceeds from every purchase go towards charitable organizations that we choose in order to make sure that we can have the most direct impact on people who are underrepresented in the technology uh, spectrum and we're looking for opportunities. So make sure you go to diabolicalcoffee.com, get some really cool t-shirts, show me uh, your your uh, shirt on the gram and I can maybe get you another bonus gift. So again, go to diabolicalcoffee.com and you're good to go. And one more thing before we get started, if you're keen on learning how to better connect with people, especially if you're doing technical selling or product marketing and product management, then I created something just for you. It's called the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. I did this because I'm doing this all the time and surrounded by fantastic folks who've given me incredible lessons and they've proven out. So if you're making money and you wanna make more, this is the way to do it. And more than anything, if you just wanna better connect with people as you have discussions around demos, it could be anything, software, whatever your service is, go to velocityclosing.com. We set up a special URL just for it. Uh, and I've had great reviews from the book, so thank you to all the folks who've already got it. You get the book, you get a, a audiobook, and you also get access to a monthly AMA where you connect with old yours truly right here, Disco Posse, and I will help you uh, through coaching sessions that we do. So you get 12-month access, uh, which is really fun. Uh, they're actually really great sessions, and we post them up for recording after the fact. All right, so remember, this is where the good stuff begins. This is Dan Burkaw from NAMI ML, and really, really cool show. We talk about the technology, the reason for doing business. Uh, we get into everything around. He does MMA, lifestyle. It's a really great wide-ranging show. Enjoy. This is Dan Burkaw. I'm the co-founder and CEO of NAMI ML, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Disco Posse. 
Uh, so, Dan, thank you very much for joining today. I've definitely in, been looking in a lot of areas of interest that you are vastly experienced in. Uh, so both on NAMI ML, and you've got a really, really neat sort of background, and, and you can cover a lot of good stuff. So the good thing is we've got time to explore some neat areas. But before we get too far, uh, Dan, if you want to just introduce yourself to the folks and Tell us a bit about yourself and 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 Nami, and we'll kind of jump into first, like what's the challenge you're solving there, and and we'll kind of just take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, the, so, currently the co-founder and CEO of Nami ML. Uh, we are uh, this. So, first of all, this is my fourth startup. Um, my career has sort of evolved a bit. You know, started in open source uh, way back, and. Um, over the last decade plus, I've been building companies around the mobile space. Um, our, the last company I, I co-founded before this one was a, a company called Push.io, which was a push notification service provider. Um, we were fortunate that we were able to exit that company and I ended up um, selling it to Oracle. We ended up uh, as the kind of mobile technology inside of a group called Oracle Marketing Cloud. And that really informs what, what NAMI is and, and why we started the company. And there was sort of two two trends that we saw. Uh, and um, the, the first one was that, you know, a decade plus into kind of the world of mobile and smartphone apps, uh, we saw that companies or even, you know, from individual all the way up to sort of large companies, folks were struggling to both commit the resources necessary to keep these experiences kind of alive over the duration, right? There's been a lot of great apps that have shipped uh, and maybe been had a couple of releases or been maintained for a year or two, but then they kind of go by the wayside because the the person or company behind it didn't figure out a way to sustain. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, and w part of what the ecosystem has done is is and this is from the Apple and Google perspective is start to encourage app publishers to adopt subscriptions as a, a more sort of sustainable business model. Turns out those subscription businesses are just more complex to operate, um, to manage and operate and even deploy, um, let alone kind of build and grow into yeah. that durable revenue stream that you want. Um, so that's one thing that we're trying to solve with NAMI is kind of build the subscription marketing platform that helps app publishers go to market with subscriptions and then take it, to the, take it from launch to sort of um, scale uh, and optimization so that it can be something that they um, uh, so these great experiences can can live on and they can uh, and if you think about an indie developer um, kind of there's large companies and there's small indies you know for a lot of these indies it's a passion project right. and what they want to be able to do is turn it into something that could be commercially viable so that they can keep doing what they love. And so that that was part one of, of why we wanted to start NAMI was help app developers make this transition to subscriptions and kind of do so in a way where they can thrive. But then something else uh, is, is at play too. Um, inside of the Oracle Marketing Cloud building the, the mobile channel, um, my co-founder Joe uh, and myself, um, we saw how these marketing systems and these ad tech systems are built. and. Um, from the inside, uh, and they are 
I'm going to try to put this sort of politely. Um, they're not the best when it comes to end user privacy. Right. So, so we've thought about, well, how do we build a marketing system? So just by its nature, a marketing system needs to understand some things about the users that you want to market to. But so, so we have to kind of be, be aware of that. But then the flip side is that if we, if, if your thesis is that over time, it's better for tools to try to be less privacy invasive, um, how might we build a marketing system that is just architected totally differently so that private it's privacy first is it lives in a privacy first world but still can help our customers um, market effectively to their users so that's the second part of what what kind of was the our motivation to start the company was to to not just help app publishers but do it in a way where it's sort of like maybe even the first generation of one of these new types of systems that that's built for privacy first it will in effect your customer focus was both sides of the transaction, which is admirable, right? Because it's very easy to fall victim to the need to chase metrics and revenue. And not that that isn't still obviously hugely important, but to do it and set aside, like, look, we just need to get data and then we can worry about how it's protected later. And just like anything that we go into, you know, when we're consumers of products, very easy for us to just forget how much we're giving up to get those tailored ads and and you know tailored experiences and we we don't you know humans don't care about it until they realize they should and it's usually on the wrong side of a news story uh, or something and so i i very much appreciate that you've seen both sides of that and you're building towards satisfying both sides because we have to like, how do you tailor if you have no data? There's an unfortunate truth that you have to be able to gather data to be able to tailor the experience to create effective ways to engage new customers. Yeah, and the the conventional wisdom in a lot of these types of systems that have collected data, so be it you know analytics tools or or even things in the ad tech stack, you mentioned, you know, tailored advertising. Um, the, some of these systems have been built in such a way where the, 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 the design starts with, well, let's just collect as much as we can and then figure out what's relevant later. Well, the problem is once the genie's out of the, the bottle there around collecting everything, it's really hard to go back and say, okay, well, now that we know how to tailor ads, using this data that we've collected let's stop collecting this other stuff like people don't do that these companies are not doing that because by the time they 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 get a couple generations or maybe even a couple releases into the tailored experience the revenue starts their revenue yeah and and it might kind of go crazy and they get addicted to it and so then nobody's ever going to say well let's stop collecting this other data because all they can think about is, well, maybe, maybe we could, maybe this is how we accelerate what we're doing in the future, uh, um, by tailoring even more. Uh, so, so that's tricky. Um, but I, I believe it's a kind of a false, uh, equivalent kind of a false choice around do, do, do we have to collect, um, data to, to tailor 
look, well, so let's put it a different way. Yes, data is required in order to tailor, but, but what isn't necessarily required is for that data to reside somewhere in the cloud. Right. Especially in a world now where these devices can run machine learning algorithms, you know, on them to do all sorts of things like unlock the phone. Apple's face ID isn't built around the notion that your face, the point cloud that represents your face sits on Apple server somewhere. In fact, it doesn't. They right. trained a model in the cloud, but then the algorithm that's, that's, that's uh, tuned for your specific features lives only on your devices. And so they've kind of achieved this kind of nice um, ideal state where they're getting the benefits of machine learning for this feature but without the really personal data living off you, your device uh, in somebody else, on somebody else's servers. It's it's really funny because we we often forget that. I mean, like everyone's like in the conversation with somebody, they say, you know, what do you think about machine learning at the edge? Is it going to be possible? Yeah. I'm like, if you get an iPhone, it's possible. <laughs> and they're like, yep. is that edge? I'm like, yes, it's a remote device that's not... Can, it's asynchronously connected back to some service, but the data and processing lives locally. Yes. We've already got this. <laughs> it's not a surprise, but it is we, whenever we think of like ML at the edge, somebody for whatever reason has this vision of raspberry pies glued to the side of a cell tower. It's like, it like it's a fixed thing or, but Tesla's, you know, LIDAR, all of these things, right? This is edge, this, this, we have capabilities. And, you know, the phone, if you're using mobile targeting, I don't care about the LIDAR and the cell yeah. tower. I care, I've, I've got the bloody thing in my hand that I need to use. That's where my user lives. <laughs> yeah, and, and so it's a balance. If, if you want to design in this sort of way, uh, there is a balance of, of well, what do I have to do in the cloud? Right today, I can't train the full model on the device, but what I can do is I can tune the model so that you've got something that's like the base model's been trained in the cloud using sort of you know anonymized or aggregate data, and then you deploy that as kind of the base model that sits on the device, and then sort of tune it, tweak you know it's a you know minor tweak so that it's personalized for the user. So that's what's possible today, but you can imagine a, you know a future state where the hardware is even better and better. Like, why wouldn't you want to put more and more of the training um, on the device? And maybe, maybe you never do at the scale of some of these types of algorithms, um, but that's the balancing act is that you, and so if you think about other features like Siri, which is much more cloud connected today, or some of the other voice assistants, you know, I could imagine a future iteration of those things where they find a way to uh, um, tailor responses more closely to the edge than they do today. So face IDs, you know, an ideal case of, of something doing it well, Siri's probably less on that spectrum. But right. but what happens over time? What are they able to achieve over time given advances in, in the hardware? Yeah, like could I say, Siri, what are my appointments today? It doesn't need to leave the device to do that as long as it can do most of the the active processing of voice create, you know, like the playback locally, because a lot of that is living on the phone itself. Yeah. Now, this is the other thing too is right. If I'm a developer and I'm creating, you know, the latest version of Jumpy Frog or whatever, like whatever thing, even a, a say a true like consumer application. 
What I love about what you're doing with the team is that I shouldn't have to build the system that does my subscriptions and engage. Like that's, I want a service to do that. I'm in the business of developing the app experience, not the subscription experience. And so I really enjoy that you've taken that and like this becomes a service. Cause I think that's where a lot of folks, like you said, get hung up. They're just trying to get a developed app. They put it out there. They go through all the hoops to get it into the store. They get some early users. And then, you know, now they have to think about engagement and measurement and revenue and all these things. And, you know, meanwhile, like I said, it could be, could be you or I just, you know, spinning yeah. up some, some local Swift code. And now I don't want to get into the ad business. I don't want to get into subscription business. I, I just want to have my app be the thing that I focus on and then just engage a service that I know is going to do this thing well. Yeah. And one of the challenges is that the way that I'll take the Apple ecosystem uh, for a moment here. Uh, so because Apple has driven the move towards subscriptions, Google has, has, has followed. And I don't, I don't mean that in a, you know, Google leads on a lot of things. In fact, a lot of their APIs are, are much better. Um, but in terms of what they're driving their their developers to to do is kind of the the first step in monetization apple was really out first on this and so but but the way they built it with the way apple built it it, it has been how they built everything sort of going back to the first version of the app store which is that yeah you know in fact the app store was built on top of itunes so when you're dealing with when um paid downloads in the old days or in-app purchases, uh, you would see these little artifacts in some of the payloads from Apple that would be like, huh, well, why is that there? And then you're like, oh, oh, it's because this is all built on iTunes and the yeah. idea of a 99 cent track. Um, and so you start to see some of those artifacts. And then over time, as they've added these other mechanisms, things like pre-orders or things like subscriptions, it's just another bolt-on. And so that versus kind of a fundamental new implementation. And so what that means is that is that to a developer, it may look like adding subscriptions is, is this incremental ad, but it turns out it's not um, because it looks like it's just this like slight addition to the frameworks. Um, they can kind of be tricked into thinking, oh, this is just a little bit more work, but it's actually not a little bit more work. It's a lot more work. And so they spend a lot of time building the plumbing layer and not even thinking about the other things the the revenue and the um, um, and the the purchase experience and things like the um, you know acquisition how does it play into acquisition because unfortunately most apps can't can't grow just on organic alone so you have to be running these uh, install ads uh, in different right. markets and uh, different networks. And so you, you need to be able to measure the effectiveness of those things and not just of driving the install, but uh, did the install lead to uh, somebody trying the free trial or converting into the subscription? And because some ads may be more effective at driving that than others. And so all of those things people aren't even able to think about when they're doing that initial implementation because um, the plumbing ends up being just way more work than they than they think it's going to be. And then once they get there, once they launch, um, um, chances are, in most cases, when you kind of do it yourself, then you don't have the foundational steps that you need 
um, in order to, to really succeed. And so the one concrete example around that is, is the purchase experience itself. And so, you know, in one of these apps, you might see a screen that offers you, you know, a monthly plan or an annual plan. Well, right. most developers hard code that screen. It's just another screen in their application. <laughs> You're that, either choosing A or B, right? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so the, the issue though is that we have to, I mean, man, this is we're 10, 12 years later. We have people have to be able to move at the speed of the market today. And the market is moving way faster than it did a decade ago. And so if if to make a little change, like, huh, I wonder if uh, I wonder if a a, a, a weekly plan would be better for revenue or, or I wonder if my users would want that a weekly plan more than the monthly plan. Well, to even ask those, ask and answer those questions through data, you have to be able to move fast yeah. to test, see the results, could kind of take the results in and say, okay, well, what do we do with this, this data? And so because these screens tend to be hard coded, folks kind of just set up their plans sometimes based upon their initial, oh, well, what are our competitors doing? So they'll go and look at, oh, I'm, if I'm a fitness app, let me look at another fitness app that seems to be doing well. I'll copy their plans and, right. uh, and, and I'm going to do well, right? Yeah. Uh, but it never works that way. Well, and it's it's funny just like thinking even through. So I, I built a, an app that I'm using and I, I, I do it for like sort of mentoring and connecting people up. And so I wanted to think about how do I do this where I can, I worked on the using algorithmia for machine learning algorithms to do all these neat ways to match people up and do criteria. It's basically a, a glorified dating app. It's just for mentoring, yeah. like, but it's the stable marriage algorithms. It's like, it's the fundamentals of algorithms, but I didn't want to build that. So I used that. And then I got all the way to the end and I thought, okay, this is great. Now I need to build the authentication system around it. Ah, and yes. And all of a sudden I'm like, I am not a developer. <laughs> and I just became acutely aware. So I hired a person of Upwork to do it for me. And they did it for actually a very good price. And I was very happy. But then I thought, okay, well now what happens when this Rails framework I'm using is suddenly deprecated? When what, like all this other stuff, like I don't, is it secure? Do I need to do pen testing? So what do I do? I go to do the next iteration of it. I, I got auth zero. Like, just let them handle it. I pass tokens. Life is good. I shouldn't have to care about this. Because, and as you talked about this, like as I connected it up for the first time, I thought, why in the hell didn't I do this before? Because the screen was there. I just had to check off, like, I want this yeah. to be, you know, choose which authenticators you can have. And it could be the same thing. Like, should I choose monthly? Should I choose weekly? Should I choose annually? Three month plans, not like, if I thought about how much I spent developing just the goofy form and then not even thinking about the logic behind it, and that's not even subscriptions, that was just pure authentication form with like four fields in it. And yeah. so like this story you're telling me, I'm like, this resonates heavily because login is one thing. They're already kind of committed to me. And that's fine. I'm, I'm not looking to grow heavily, but subscription, it's a make or break. Right. I mean, Strava is another great example where even as they changed their model, they had all these fantastic free users, this incredible community. I'm a member of it. And then they said, oh, yeah, we're going to make a change. We need to kick things in. We're going to try stuff out. Well, inevitably, they've got to test some of that before they try it. Based on my experience, they didn't test well. <laughs> Most of the people I knew didn't didn't go. You know, they just they hung on the free platform and they kind of learned to live with some of the features. But. Anyways, the point of this is like, I 
I shouldn't have to worry about testing that in coding it. I should be testing the results of the experience, not building the forms and the, the flow. It's just like, let's just lean on systems that can do this. Well, and we've heard this before in just, you know, conventional startup wisdom. Uh, but the ideas that we all have, that form, that first iteration of the form, you know, you, you thought these are the fields that I need. Right. And then you found somebody that can go and, and, and execute on that. Or similarly, you know, in, in the example that I, I shared, uh, okay, well, we're going to have these two subscription pricing plans. And these are the ones that are going to be the ones that we always have. Well, then you get to market and you realize maybe, oh, maybe I need to add this other field to the, to the sign-up form. Or you know what? Maybe I actually need to reduce the number of fields because I've created too much friction. Yeah, right. I thought four fields was, was manageable by my users, but really what they want is sign in with Apple and sign right. in with Google. And don't, I don't want to input any data at all, right? And, and you don't find that out until you see users either struggling or kind of not getting past your roadblocks um, and you try to figure out why that is. And you need to be able to adapt kind of quickly. So, so that's it, it's still, and that's what surprises, somewhat surprises me is that we're pretty deep into the quote unquote app economy and um, people are still building things very monolithic or very kind of static um because i think it's in part because we especially if you're a, a large organization that um puts a lot of care into kind of requirements or design mock-ups and these kinds of things maybe a lot of pre-work has gone into that development effort so then you're kind of locked into it and yeah. um and and you've got people have bought in to to all of that pre-work and so then it's hard to 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 change, even if you don't have the even if you do have the capability to change quickly, then you have a different kind of organizational inertia that's getting in the way. If you're a small developer, well, that you you don't have organizational inertia, but you have just the pure sort of you know, development resources required to make any change. Um, so we're trying to streamline a lot of that in the subscription space where people can just literally go into our website and, you know, if they want to make the monthly package below the annual package in the list yeah they could just rearrange click a button and boom it's live they want to change the background artwork they want to change the marketing materials because to us that those those checkout screens are sort of just another marketing touch point why wouldn't it have the flexibility that all these ad networks have where you can just upload new creative push a button and now people are seeing your ad yeah um they, they, they should be it, or the app store storefront you know you can go upload new screenshots you can change the text it you can change the title if what you originally started with just isn't resonating with the users that you're trying to attract so we have to be able to move more quickly in in a marketplace where there's just so much competition in any category that's out there yeah, instead of spending time uh, on on witty update notes, that's still a thing. Remember that there was like a couple of sort of like viral update notes, and you know, like, but it was the goal is like, how do you catch attention and and maintain it? And this is, like I said, it's important. You've been in mobile and this app economy for a long time, and it's older than most people would realize uh, as well, because it sort of predated a lot of the technology advances. You know, it was the whole thing is that the the cart and horse were very parallel for a long time until you know the ecosystem learned from the the creators 
and they all kind of learned off of each other. So I'm curious on on you, you know, as we look at the size of the market, the, the number of apps, like the, I'll say the maturity of the middle tier of folks in the field, because obviously there's the leaders, right? There's, you know, it's yeah. like, if I go to the, the, you know, the, the top, you know, the PayPal mafia and ask them about starting a company, of course, they're going to tell me about their success because they've gotten one and it paid them billions. And then they can just talk about that all the rest of their lives. But most people are not those people. Like they're just kind of grinding it out in this beautiful middle class of, of app economy. So how have you seen the evolution since you got started? Well, it, there is so much more competition, but then there's also way more tools at, at one's disposal. I mean, just in, I, I shared a little kind of mini use case earlier where let's say you want to grow faster than just organic. So now you start placing around the internet or in Facebook or in social media apps, you start placing ads promoting your app um, to try to drive installs. Well, turns out there's like a whole ecosystem of vendors and there's about three vendors that have most of the market share, but there's more than three vendors. That's that, that all they're trying to do as, as a company. And I say that not to downplay what they're doing because it's a critical com component, but it, that is just to say that, that like it's a narrow focus to some degree is to be able to attribute whether an ad that drove an install um, Tie, they want to tie a, an install and a user back to that advertising. And because of privacy, back to the topic we kind of started on, um, that attribution piece on mobile is very, very difficult. So mm -hmm. these guys have all sorts of, you know, strategies to kind of help provide. Because what it is, is it's a data, it's a data gap that um, if you're spending $5,000 a month on install ads and you want to see what the ROI is on that, well, you need some way to measure that. So there's these attribution companies that are have figured out ways, even with the privacy uh, restrictions, to give you some insights into the effectiveness. Um, and that's just that's just attribution, you know. And then you go down into push notifications, a space I know well. Lots of vendors, right? Go into in-app messaging, lots of vendors, A/B testing, analytics. I mean, so there's there's all sorts of things that you can build your experiences. Uh, with today from a vendor perspective, let alone what the ecosystems themselves had have. The Apple SDK is so more, so much more robust, so many more rich APIs than than a decade ago. The same is true in the, the Android ecosystem. So the kinds of experiences that people can build are just phenomenal compared to what you would have been able to build a decade ago. But in that kind of phenomenal ability does create a degree of more complexity. Now there's more form factors. Do you want to just be on the phone or do you want to be on the tablet and the watch? Do you want to be on the, the TV, uh, uh, the Apple TV or the Fire TV? And so it, things do have become more complex. And I think it, what, what it probably drives is, is it's back to focus and just really trying to understand like, what are you trying to, what are you trying to deliver to the world um, and focus on the right priorities and try to learn, learn as quick back to, you know, moving fast if you can't learn quickly i i was part of a uh, a, a webinar recently where um it, the, the kind of format of it was that people that were building applications would submit their applications for sort of an audit right and there was this one application that was um in the kind of productivity category 
and, and it stands out to me because it had so many capabilities. It was, it was like this guy, this person had invested a ton of energy into building this thing. Um, but it also struck me that not any one thing about it was particularly memorable, right? It had so much in there. It was action packed with features and capabilities, but nothing really shined. Uh, so I think focus is important and because you do have, you could put in AR in your application using AR kit, but is that, but should you? Yes. Or just because, <laughs> just, just because Core ML exists and lets you run machine learning models on the device, like, is there a compelling use case for your application? Yeah, this is the, as somebody who took my first idea, tested it with like a handful of people and basically then burnt it to the ground to like, this is a, I had to be, it was a really honest self-assessment of like, okay, I'm aiming to do four things particularly well, and I've achieved none of them. And then someone says, you know, what I actually kind of like is this daily journaling thing. I actually use that the most. I'm like, all right, guess what? That's the new app. <laughs> and, and that was, it, it was hard because at first I'm thinking, exactly this problem this other person had of like, well, yeah, I want to do a little bit of this. I need to add this. And like, I think of my own use case, but you know, I'm, I'm in competing with four apps yeah. instead of capturing an audience for one, which is what really mattered to me. Right. It's uh, but, and, and then the, the tooling and the options, I think as well, like you said, there's lots of more sort of low code, uh, no code, uh, you know, easy third-party integrations. Like the ecosystem is so much better than I remember building my first, you know, very simple, you know, my CIO says, hey, can we put our our web app, you know, can we create a, an iOS app? I'm like, all right, let me learn how to code. Like I'm not, I'm the ops kid that runs the data center. I'm like, yeah, why not? Let me give it a whirl. So I carved out an iOS app with relative ease just to basically display the the web page, you know, very simple yeah. WebKit stuff. But so, and that was the end of my road in development. I'm like, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm out, you know, like, but like as a proof of concept, they're like, hey, looks neat. You can make a screenshot of it that wasn't even a mock-up. It was actually a picture of a real phone running our, our web app. And then they could go to developer and they had months of effort ahead of them. But now... I could probably go and build that fairly fully functional, you know, front end and, and interactive app. But again, like you said, you know, well, now what? You know, now how do we actually make it stick, engage users, measure effectiveness? And this is where, like, I'm doing it even on on other like just websites that I'm I'm working on and and companies that I'm you know advising. If you can't Moving fast is about measuring and then moving against the measurements. If you don't measure and you can't get that feedback and you can't test, then no one's moving fast. It's a total myth. I mean, one great concrete example in the app space is there's these cross-platform frameworks now like, like React Native. Right. And, and I say now, I mean, some of these things have been around for a while. React Native and um, Xamarin and some of these things. And so if you're a decision maker in an organization and you're going to apply budget to let it, let's be on the app store and Google play. You're thinking, Oh, wow. I can just have our team code this once using this cross-platform framework. And then I can get to both, both, both destinations. Great. Let's do that. 
Well, but but there's a hidden cost. And actually those hidden costs are huge because the way those things work is they, they're basically a translation layer. So you write React code, which is, I guess, basically JavaScript with some API interfaces. And, um, and, and then that's kind of bound somehow. I mean, I don't really understand how it fully works, but it's bound somehow to the native APIs on both platforms. And so what you end up doing is spend so much time on the build system and just getting the native binaries out yeah. of the build system that have gone through your transition trans, transition step of using this intermediary technology that uh, you're just not releasing as fast. So <laughs> yeah. now that re that release cycle, you, you you might develop your React Native code pretty quickly, but by the time you like pop out the binary and it's time to test it and then ship it to, and that's if all the tests work well and you can just ship it. Well, that's one thing, but we know how these things go. You go through UAT and now you kick back to development because you've got issues you need to address before you're ready to call something released. Yeah. And and so there's a real, um, uh, I think one of the skills that that isn't out there as much as it should is, is you know, a real kind of, uh, uh, strong kind of like i think there's cios and there's 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 vps of engineering that 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 are mobile industry domain experts and that that can make some of these decisions um and because they just think mobile is just another client it's just another output layer and that's how they think about the world and um you kind of have to be through it sometimes and 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 ship and kind of go through some of the pain that I'm describing to then realize, you know, okay, well, mobile is a little different and maybe we should treat some of our decisions a little bit different. We can be informed by our thinking on how we build our web application, our web experience, but we need to just contemplate some of these other uh, um, considerations there's an app review process. You have to get through the app review process. It's pretty right. fast. Uh, these no free ride. It's a there. There's a wait time and a potential impact. Yeah, and it's it, it is much faster these days than it that's been in the years past. But if you've built with one of these cross-platform frameworks, for example, um, then there's all sorts of thing edge cases that app review might find that they wouldn't have if you built directly to the native APIs. And so what looked like kind of a, a rational business decision to kind of write once to play everywhere um, may succeed, right? I'm not saying it's always going to fail, but there's, there's other costs that, that will, will, be, will be borne out and they may be time costs um, that kind of offset what you thought you were saving in terms of dollars. It, it, it when people make the decision around mobile and, and quite often you'll see the Apple ecosystem wins that first run because they're definitely number one, there's a lot of frameworks, a lot of tools to get you, get you there quicker. And also there's effectively four to eight models you got to care about. And they're even like, micro differentiations in screen size between the phones versus if you head over to the Android ecosystem, God bless them, but there's like 297 different models you got to code for because of screen sizes and languages and people customize their stuff. So it's like, I get why people just head right to the old Apple app store and say, look, I'm just going to write it in Swift, you know, 
And they spent a little bit of time in, in, you know, I remember Cordova, like was the Apache Cordova oh, yeah. was one of the first ones. And, you know, same thing. I was like, okay, if I want to be cross-platform, I should learn this stuff. And like, now I'm learning Cordova, not learning how to build an app that matters to people. And it's, I immediately go to like, uh, where should I be spending my, my effort and, and headspace? It should be in creating an experience that will matter to the end consumer of this thing. Yeah, it's really high. I mean, and that, not just mobile technologies, but all the technologies that exist, databases and cloud things and, you know, abstractions to to things. And, oh, well, because, you know, I don't want to manage the server anymore. So I'm going to buy a service that manages the server that deploys the database that I want to use. But then, you know, but then that has some limitation and I need a time series database. And, and so you get into this whole thing where making technology decisions is still really, really hard. And uh, if you if the kind of core reason that you're doing something isn't well articulated before you're making those technology decisions, you end up going down a path and then coming right back, maybe not right back to it, but you'll you'll be back to a decision point again um, yeah. because the thing that you selected probably didn't work out uh, in practice. And meanwhile, some kid developed Jumpy Frog and made a million dollars in a month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, this is what's always tough whenever, like, we, we unfortunately use these metrics of like total outliers, you know, like people that they am developing a video, you know, aspect for my, my YouTube channel. And I'm like, people say, oh, do you want to like put in ads and monetize? And like, like, I'm not looking to be Ryan's toy review or blippy or whatever. I say these names because I know them because I've got kids, but it's like, these are outliers that have put in years of effort into creating content and that's their, their thing, you know, even as overnight success as they sound like that's, that's not what I want to be doing. I want to put it up so that people have a visual aspect to these conversations and they see the, the nonverbals that are part of the discussion. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, but the other reason I, I, I'm curious, you know, you've got such a, a really strong history you talked about. You've had four companies, you've had successful exits. And whenever I see the word serial entrepreneur and I see four as the number, I know that's at four of the ones we talk about. You probably tested a hell of a lot in between. You probably had your first startup when you were around nine. You, you know, like there's, there's always, this doesn't just suddenly happen when you're 25 and you're finished up school and you say, I think I'm going to become an entrepreneur. It's, it's a bug. It's a it's a piece of DNA you know sequence that's that's buried inside you. So maybe if you don't mind, uh, Dan, you want to talk about you know the process of you know your your first you know sort of major companies here. Like the, let's talk about the four, and even I'd love to go a bit further back into what gave you the entrepreneurial bug. Yeah. Uh, so the, the the first one was uh, a company that uh, was came out of the open source world. And what we were doing was building Linux, a version of Linux and some software on top of, of that version um, de deployed to Apple Macintosh hardware. So we were the basically the commercial grade option if you wanted to run Linux on, on a Mac. But where we found some commercial success was that uh, at a period of time when that company, when we were doing that company, uh, Apple was still using the PowerPC microprocessor 
And a lot of folks in scientific computing, so folks at the US national labs or uh, in some of the military or defense department uh, agencies where they're trying to run these algorithms. We were talking earlier about algorithms that now can run on a phone. But in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, um, if you were the National Weather Service or you were um, you know, at NASA JPL trying to process data off of a Mars rover, uh, chances are you could not process that data fast enough. And so what you would do is try to go find um, off the shelf hardware um, that was reasonably affordable and then link that hardware together into a cluster computer. Right. Um, so that was generally more cost effective than buying like something like a, a Cray supercomputer uh, for these agencies. And so at a, that period of time, the PowerPC microprocessor had the best price per performance per watt of anything you could buy off the shelf. Oh, wow. And so we were selling software that would enable these, these agencies to uh, basically run all sorts of scientific algorithms um, on, in some cases, you know, a dozen Macs, but in some other cases, hundreds of Macintosh computers linked together, not running Mac OS, not running Mac OS 10, but running our flavor of Linux. And so that was the first one. How did I end up doing that? Well, uh, it, that really comes back to just when I was in you know, even late elementary school. So I think you're nine uh, might be kind of <laughs> somewhere in the ballpark in you know, late elementary school, early junior high school. Um, we had an internet connection in the library and I started in our, in our school district allowed anybody in the school district to uh, sign up to have an account on the Unix machine. And that was very, for whatever reason, that was like, yeah, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> you log into the Unix machine and it wasn't a, a terminal window. It was kind of this text-based menu system. And so that was okay. But uh, there was a way that if you made friends with the system administrator, they would strip away that menu system and just give you access to a shell. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And so then I'm teaching myself how to do shell programming. I'm learning about, you know, TCP IP and connecting into other systems. And, and that just, I basically taught myself Unix. Um, and, th and then I discovered Linux so I could do that same thing at home uh, without having to log into the school computer. I could just put it on our PC at home and keep, keep going. So I just learned the heck out of it and spent probably way too much time um, just trying to master those skills. And so it, what it led to was then I started doing, you know, system administration freelancing for people through the web design, through the, the internet provider that, that, um, that we use. And that led to getting linked up with you know, web designers that could build those early websites, but didn't have a, didn't know how to host them. And so then I'd be the person that would kind of set up the systems to host them. And so that all kind of led to um, Linux on the Mac, which which is a long story of, in its own right in how we even started that company. But that then led to those that commercial uh, business around scientific computing and doing things like building a cluster of Macs running on each uh, ship of the U.S. Navy nuclear submarine fleet uh, running our software, which was pretty wild. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and sometimes you think to yourself, like, it's not like I need to run this thing on a nuclear submarine. Oh, wait, actually, we do. <laughs> but I tell you, I wish there was 
if there was a dazed and confused for the eighties, that would be the core story. Like it's folks like you and I, who are like getting access to Novell systems and yeah. the first Unix boxes and, and compiling our Linux kernels at home and, and doing all this crazy stuff. And then we would go out and, and, and party on Fridays with your friends that you'd phone on a telephone and, and you'd meet at this, like we, there was such a, a neat experience of going where it, our parents were the first administrators, like our previous generation, like my dad was, went to radio college of Canada. We had an entire family of farmers, nurses, and teachers. And he decided to go off reservation and, and he went the, the engineering route. So as a kid, I was sitting there, you know, and I've got a K pro luggable running CPM. And that was like my thing I learned. So when I, yeah, you get to the library and they go, Hey, wait a second. You know, if I reboot this thing and I can like hit some escape sequences, I can get out to a shell. And like, that's that super, like it just turns on a part of your brain going like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this, but I feel like I need to learn how to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. It's just like kind of, um, going where your, you know, uh, imagination takes you. And yeah. in, in that case, it was just like, well, what, what does it do if I do this? You know, oh, well, why didn't that work? Well, let me figure out why that didn't work. And, and, and so, you know, to, to the other companies that I've done since, I mean, the, 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 they were, so the next one that I did, did uh, was I built an app development agency that um, was the, that I uh, launched right on the eve of the app store. And the idea was in those early days was that, you know, nobody, none of these companies are going to have objective C developers in house, Right. but there's a certain class of companies in, in 2008, even that are going to want to build apps. And then by 2010, even more companies and by 2014, even more companies. And so we built out an agency that over time got larger and larger and we, we were able to exit it um, as well. Um, but, but Double Encore, the agency and Push.io, the, the push service, those companies were, were much more sort of driven. Well, Double Encore was, was driven by um, a little bit of seeing where the market was going to go from a guy that, you know, had a BlackBerry and wanted to run apps on his BlackBerry. And it was always an awful experience because the, the, the persistent connection wasn't there to the network. And so, you know, you, you get the, you, you'd want AOL instant messenger to tell you right away that you had a message. And sometimes you had to like launch the app to see that you had a message. And so it was right. just never quite right. And so I kind of just had an intuition that, man, this, this iPhone thing with kind of desktop class networking um, is going to be a pretty big deal, even on just edge networking in that first generation. Um, but, but you know, it, it, each subsequent startup, kind of from that first one to now, there's as a serial entrepreneur, there's been more and more sort of, uh, how do I say it, uh, um, pre-work or sort of, um, you know, thinking, <laughs> just, just thinking going into, should I do this? Should I not do this? It, whereas in those very early days, it's just like, no, this is just what we're doing on Friday. You know, we're not going out. We're not, you know, this is what, this is our hobby. Yeah. And so the hobby leads, led to something that was more than a hobby. And it just kind of happened naturally. Whereas nowadays it's just like, is this really the thing I want to be doing or should I do this other thing? And you kind of get into decision paralysis, especially having some successes. I, I feel real imposter syndrome sometimes because it's like, well, 
are all the reasons those other things worked out going to mean that this one's going to work out? Well, no, it's not automatic. It's hard. It's maybe even more, more difficult because it's a more complex, you know, there's so many SaaS solutions out there now. Um, the, the, I, I, you know, I can't believe how much of the world is still uh, built around, do you have good SEO? Yeah. <laughs> SEO seems to like power the SaaS economy in a lot of ways. Uh, so anyway. I used to always sort of joke with people and they'd say, like, well, I was writing blogs for myself and that's why I was a blogger. And, and But I was writing because I needed to solve a specific problem and I learned how to do it. I couldn't find it on Stack Overflow or wherever. And so I found the answer. I wrote the bloody answer. And then next thing you know, Google was discovering that because of just natural language SEO. And so when I moved to, when I came to a company and I was my job now, I'm like, hey, I'm doing blog writing as part of my gig as an evangelist. And they said, you know, we need to SEO your article. So I'm like, no kid, I am the SEO. Like I'm solving a problem that people have, but I had to really quickly humble myself to like, no, no, no. If we want this to really be discoverable, if you do do SEO stuff, you have a fantastic impact on things. And you've got to think mindfully about how you build content, how you build the app, how you design the experience. Like there was a lot more luck to the, you know, 40,000 views a month that I was getting than there was to, you know, get in that because I don't do SEO has naturally trailed downwards. You know, I get articles that are older that still get hits all the time, but like now as I make a decision, I'm kind of like what you're saying, like, should I do this? Should I do this? Like, oh, it's super easy to get hung up. And you just think, I, it just worked last time. Not yeah. remembering the years of stuff you put into it to actually make it just suddenly work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so easy over to, to look back at things and say, well, of course it was going to be successful given this other stuff that was going on in the market or kind of where we were in these big, profound you know, waves of change. Um, but no, uh, none of it's guaranteed. And, and there's a lot of luck. I mean, um, one of one of really what propelled two of those com those two mobile companies and arguably Nami is a mobile company, too, although we care about subscriptions on the web and other platforms as well. But um, Double Encore and Push.io, you know, really were born out of one in one interaction at Apple's worldwide developer conference where one of my in first engineers on the team happened to be sitting next to a guy who ended up being our largest customer, you know, <laughs> And it's like, so he hands me this, he, he, I wasn't with him at the time. And, and he, um, later he says, Hey, I sat next to this guy. He hands me a business card. He's like, you should really have coffee with him. I look at the, the logo on the business card. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have coffee with this guy. And up at the Starbucks next to Moscone in San Francisco, we hit it off immediately, you know, and, and that turned into sort of a decade's worth of, of very lucrative commercial work for us. And more importantly than just being lucrative, it was, that was kind of the, the person that gave that company a chance. Right. And then, and, and not, that was the person, but he represented a company. So that was sort of like the first enterprise that gave the company a chance. And then from there, it's just so much easier to sort of for that second customer say, well, you're not taking a chance on us as much as the last guys took a chance on us. Right. And, th and this is what their name is. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. You were good enough for them. Well, you must be good enough for us. You know? And so, it, that was just a, a pure luck, right? Yeah. Pure luck that my engineer was sitting next to that person that ended up being our best customer for a decade. I always sort of 
this is the funny thing. I'd love to actually unpack more of these. Like there's like the the amount like luck, hundred percent. I'm I I totally agree. Luck is such a, an incredible factor. But I I talk about access to luck. Yeah. As a metric that we that's the real measurement. And that's perseverance, time spent doing stuff which nobody else would be willing to do. Like I'm not talking about David Goggins running shirtless at three o'clock in the morning or Gary Vaynerchuk yelling at you that you're not grinding hard enough. Like good on them. That's a fantastic thing that, that motivates some people. I I get more humor out of it than motivation. But when I think of even my own stuff and, and I feel like I'm not doing enough and I'm not and and I describe stuff to like my sister and she's like, you do way too many things. <laughs> and everyone was like, but that's how I've gotten lucky because I chose to throw myself at a lot of you know, the proverbial, you know, throw enough shit at the wall, eventually something sticks. Unfortunately, sometimes four or five things stick at the same time and, and you get a little burnt out. But so, you know, four four companies in, even though luck is an incredible factor to it, there's there's probably a lot of lessons that you probably learned and you know, what, what does current Dan look back now and tell first business Dan, all right, this is how it's going to go. And there's this thing that you're going to think is the actual turning point and it's not, you know, or something like that. Well, I, I just think the importance of the team is so, is so, um, it might be the first or thing that's most important. And in and it's and that's tricky because to have a first rate team, sometimes you have to spend first rate money. Right. And when you're a startup, you have to figure out, well, I may not have first rate money to spend. Well, so what other levers do I have? Or or, you know, how how do you how do you organize a great team if you don't have all all the capital in the world? And so that's that is both a challenge um, that you know is always going to be faced to some degree, right? Because like even if you raise capital, you're not raising infinite capital. That's right. <laughs> you still have to be careful and mindful and think about where's this, where are these dollars going to have the the, the most um, impact? And I, would I rather kind of you know four average people because I, then I can cover more territory or one really great person that may be able to cover some, you know, maybe not, maybe two persons worth of territory, but they're still, they're not gonna be able to cover four persons worth of, you know, so it's like you end up really challenged by resource allocation and, and, you know, how, how do you hire good people? And, um, and, 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 and also just, just because somebody's expensive also doesn't necessarily mean they're the best either. Right. So, so there's, uh, you know, just really trying to sift through um, um, talent and and understanding what your look, what your your true needs are. What are you What do you really need? Because sometimes in the in the in the trench, it feels like, oh man, I need the, I I, I need better SEO. Well, let's hire an SEO person. Well, do I really need to hire an SEO person, or can I get some cycles from an SEO person uh, on a freelance basis? Would that move the needle for us? Um, and so these are the kinds of things. Um, and then the other thing is that, uh, you know, I would say like, if you just trace from now to back at the beginning, you know, in the first company, I was more of the technology person. So I was very not, but, but by its very nature, um, 
I wasn't the, the, the business operator. That was my co-founder. I was the technology person. So I was very hands-on. The second company, I was somewhat hands-on, especially in the early days when we didn't have all the engineers in the world. So sometimes I would, you know, we'd need to get a project over the finish line and I'd, I'd get in the code. Yeah. Um, the push company, a little less in the code. And now at NAMI, a little, hopefully a little less in the code, although from time to time it still happens uh, in part to keep me and maybe even the team sharp uh, a little bit. But uh, what I, so I recently went out on a paternity uh, leave. I came back from a, I took three weeks off. Um, it's our first child, um, which is very exciting for us. Congratulations. Things, thank you. And, and I bring it up because in, in stepping away from the business for three weeks, I, I, I realized that I wasn't, I still wasn't operating as strategically as I would have, would always like to be right. Um, we've got a great team that, should be completely empowered to, to run quite autonomously or sort of with low direction um, to just get the things done that we need to get done and um, follow kind of the strategic roadmap and, and you know, know where we're heading, right? The ship should be pointing in the right direction. And that's right. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, it's just, it's, it was fascinating to step away for a little bit and realize, oh, you know, I thought I was at 30,000 feet, but I was only operating at 15,000 feet. Ah, that's way better than a thousand feet way better than negative a thousand feet, yeah. but, um, but it could be better, it could be more elevated. And so what was interesting is that time away gave me this time to kind of daydream strategically and that importance of daydreaming uh, in startup land, I think is really, really important. And there's ways that you can, um, there's ways that you can uh, light the match for daydreaming. One of those ways is you can work out. That's right. one of the best ways right? Jump on the Peloton or go for a long run or whatever it is, you're almost certainly going to daydream about the thing that you are kind of noodling on relative to the enterprise because you're never really shut, you know, it's never off. It's never completely off. And that's okay, I think, because um, uh, the, the, the difference is just that if you're always on but active, right? I think you can right. be on in a passive way that helps you overcome some challenges that you're, you're trying to solve. Um, and that's different from just being always like at the keyboard, typing something, banging something out. Um, so that's number one. And of course, you know, another way to like the match is long hot showers in my, uh, in my experience, those two things help you daydream. Daydreaming is usually something that helps you be strategic. Yeah, it's funny as a uh, cyclist, I'm I do you know reasonable distance cycling. I used to say it was long distance until most of my friends you know became cyclists. Then I realized I'm on the bottom of the rung relative to it. But so I say I ride less than many and more than most. And the, the amazing thing is, as soon as I put my leg over the crossbar and I pedal out of the driveway, I the first five minutes I'm thinking about which first turns did it make? And then immediately my mind is in creative mode because yes. I'm forcibly disconnected and it's such a fantastic feeling. The hardest part is that remembering the things that you're coming up with, especially like on a run, half hour run, I'm like, I can get back and I can throw it down on paper. A five hour bike ride, you you actually really iterate on ideas. So it's kind of a different uh, form factor. And, you know, reading in your bio too, uh, BJJ. So you are yeah. doing jujitsu uh, 
let me tell you, when you're rolling on the mat, you're very focused on that moment. But in those like, okay, you're in recovery. Like your mind is so free. It's that's the mindfulness thing. I can't meditate. Just drives me nuts. I get stressed out thinking about meditating, but I get on a bike and I'm, I guess I'm meditating and just doing it while spinning the pedals. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's with jujitsu, it's in those roles, it's slowing down your breathing is really interesting. Cause even if you can't figure out the solution to the problem you're in kind of acutely in the moment, um, it just, it, it, it does help settle you down to a point where you at least can kind of get some situational awareness that, man, I'm hosed here. Yeah. And, and I can't figure out how to, what to do about that, but I, I at least know I'm not going to die. Um, and that if, you know, I can tap at any, at any moment, but then that same daydreaming concept extends to jujitsu. I mean, I'll, I'll have a, a, a great role and then, or, or, or something will happen where I end up in the same position over and over again, and then it's game over. And I'm like, why am I ending up there? And so then that daydreaming can take on another, or, you know, the creativity, as you mentioned, another part of, of another it's not just about the business it's like sometimes i'm just like i'm, I'm laying in bed or i'm on I, i'm doing a, some other workout and i'm just like i'm thinking about a sequence of moves yeah and it's like and the mind just goes there and i'm just trying to figure it out and work it out and then the next time i'm on the mat you know you try to apply it and and i would say that is the thing that's really really difficult about capture you you talked about the five hour bike ride and kind of you know you iterate a few times and maybe maybe you weren't able to kind of cap, capture concretely everything that you kind of worked through when you come back. But even if you were able to, what I find is sometimes your, your mind's ability to arrive at a solution or an aha moment uh, during one of those creative bursts um, faces reality, faces reality when you go and try to do something about it. Right. Um, I, I listened to a podcast recently where Jerry Seinfeld was being uh, interviewed. I think it was Tim Ferriss about his writing process. Um, and he was talking about like the day he'll sit down and write something for 20 minutes. He has a his, he has a hard and fast rule, which is never share what I wrote with anybody else that day. Oh, yeah. Certainly their impression of it is going to um, be be less than what your mind thought it created. Um, so it, it, so it'll just be deflating. You'll def and so I find that sometimes, especially with creative things of like, oh, if it's now, you know, turning something into a visualization, for example, well, in my mind, the visualization was beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Pixels were perfect. Colors were great. You get into Photoshop and it's just like, oh, <laughs> this is not what I was thinking. Yeah. When even there's a, there's a line that I got explained as a quote from a fellow that I'm doing advisory with a, a friend's company. And, and we we're talking about, he says, we go through these sessions. He's like, no PowerPoints, no, whatever. He's like, let's, I need to, I need to socialize this so that we can effectively test our hypothesis between each other. And I even did that. Like I built the pitch deck for the company. I'm like, this is my, this is how I see it. And I laid it out and I was proud Yes. And you could just see them looking and sort of like side taking notes and then like, okay, go into slide sorter mode. Okay. I'm like, oh no, here it comes. And that sort of like the incredible, like beautiful passion that I had. If, if I was, I've been through it enough that I knew not to take it to heart. It wasn't a dig against me. It was their like, love what you're saying. Let's reorder this too many words in this slide. Like, 
stuff that I had, because I built it, I couldn't see it anymore. And, you know, to Seinfeld sort of thing, that's when you suddenly share it with somebody else. If I had shared it immediately, I probably would have never gotten past slide two. But yeah. because I said, okay, let me do my iteration. And I presented everything when I do it that way is like, this is my interpretation of this thing that we talked about. I would love to get your thoughts on it. And I, I mean, 40 plus year old version of me is a lot better at taking that in. 20 year old me would have been like, you know, oh, bully on you. You guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this yeah, exactly. is a goddamn great presentation. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And it's hard not to, you know, you, you get invested in the work the, and, and, but just the effort isn't, you know, you, everybody work, you know, not everybody, but most people work hard and you just, you can't attach your sort of identity system or self-worth to how hard you work. Yeah. It's gotta be attached to, to other things that are more stable because uh, you can work really hard and somebody can, you know, crap on your idea and it's not because you didn't work hard it's sometimes it's because it wasn't concise enough and so actually one of the thing, one of my little pro tips that i've been doing is that during this covid period is that um uh you know i've been on podcasts some a number of podcasts over the years but i've been amping those up during during um during covid um and part of it is that um i've missed the ability to sort of have entrepreneur to entrepreneur discussions and conversations that are more free flowing that allows some road testing of, of things. Right. Um, or, 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 you know, when you're forced to explain something to somebody that, and you don't have the deck that you spent 90 hours on. Right. And yeah, and now you're on, on the cuff. And so it's been an interesting a way to kind of create a, a, um, a road test some ideas or, or iterate on our own kind of messaging um, or, or things like that. So, um, so thank you for having me. Actually, for that matter, because <laughs> you're part of my process now. I guess <laughs> that's good. Well, no, it's and this is what's great. I the reason too why I enjoy the longer form is that it lets you get beyond the talking points. And I tell us all even like the folks that like PR firms that work with me, they're like, how's it, what are the questions, you know, give me the four questions you're going to ask. I'm like, I can give you the one question I'm going to ask and the answer from it will create the next question. And when you get past about 30 minutes, it's so funny that people literally just run out of like baked talking points. It's very yeah. rare that they have that much like, you know, scripted information in them and you can explore other stuff. And, and also, I mean, I really appreciate it. You shared a ton of great information. I could literally keep going all day on this stuff. The one thing I'm going to say, just, I, I wonder, cause you hear your story about like sitting, your engineer sits next to somebody at WWDC and you get the card. I'm like, this, this is a weird year. Cause that's yeah. gone. Like yeah. there's a lot of that. A lot of luck just got taken off the table. Changed yeah. the way that we think about, starting something and like like you said like how do we socialize this how do you validate your hypothesis with people you really got to chase it down whereas you used to just be able to go to a conference and you're there for four days or three days and you're surrounded by people that are your peers and you can you can really test stuff now you got to go out of your way to do it so it's a very different experience yeah i do like your access to luck thing uh, because in a sense you know in those days, and it's still really, 
when it's not virtual, going to WWDC was expensive. I remember that it was a decision point of, can I even afford to send that engineer? Right. Should, should <laughs> I just send him? Should I go? Um, should, you know, we had to figure out how to make that work. And, um, and, and had we not figured that out, if we had said, ah, we just can't, we can't swing it, then we would have missed that opportunity. So you're right, it is, there is an access to luck um, element too, but yeah, right. And right now in, in the, the current world, I mean, yeah, you can publish what you're doing on the product hunt, or you can, there's all sorts of forums to kind of get your stuff out there, but it's not that um, serendipity that is just like not being in the session, but then just milling about, you know, yeah. out in the city, seeing that WWDC jacket on somebody else's back and saying, Hey, what do you do? What do you work on? Oh, let me tell you what I'm, we're up to. Just like literally having some connection. Yeah, it ain't the same on a Discord server. I can tell you that. <laughs> Even as much as I, I'm like always towards a clubhouse. That always come, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, God, I really despise a lot of the, the sort of weirdness around clubhouse and you know, like as a, like why it became popular and and this weird sort of you know class system that develops immediately around any of these kind of networks. But at the same time, I'm like, it's been pretty cool to just be able to get on, hear people talk about stuff hit the like request to talk and suddenly you're on stage with somebody. I was able to talk to Scott Kelly, you know, who, you yeah. know, and like, this is bizarre. There's no reason. And like, that was the me sitting next to somebody at WWC moment, but I had to really go out of my way to go get it. And I had to seek a platform that did it. So yeah, I know why well, we'll get there. We'll adapt. Um, and, uh, but you know, I, as we come up to the close, I want to say, thank you very much, Dan. You've, you shared a lot of really good lessons. It's been a real pleasure to share time with you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And if folks want to get a hold of you, uh, what's kind of the best way to do so? Well, probably two, two main ways, uh, for the company NAMI ML, our website, www.namilikesunami.ml. Um, and then, you know, uh, for me, I'm on LinkedIn. So my last name is usually, if I've done my, if I've gotten onto a platform early, yeah. I'm able to secure the last name handle because there's not very many of us, I guess, uh, Burkhaz. That's so, the best SEO ever, right? I'm, I am yeah. the Burkhaz. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did that on, on, on Clubhouse. I, I didn't have an invite, but I, but they have that flow where you can, you can request the handle and then you, you can set your handle up in advance. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And I was like, Oh, that is very clever. Um, and, but then what I didn't realize until I got into it was that, uh, then your friends, people you know, kind of see that you're in the wait queue and they can push a button and boom, you're in. And so it's a very, what they've, they really thought through that, that onboarding process in a way that creates a little scarcity, but, but it, it, it wasn't so bad. Yeah. It's, uh, it, that's the, uh, it was the scarcity, but it's not really as scarce as it would seem. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And so to tell you about poor SEO, don't be named Eric, Wright Because there's a lot of them and like the most one, of course, easy E. So every time you try and do a Google images for Eric, Wright you see some guy with two nines crossing his chest, you know, uh, <laughs> a Canadian mystery writer who's like been around since the seventies. I'm that's how disco posse is the only way that people know me because it's, I'm like, I just, it was from a band that I was in, you know, way back when, and I, we did like heavy metal covers of disco songs before Leo Maracchielli was a, was a thing. We were doing that thing. And so I just said, like, when I came to building the first domain, 
I was like, ah, what the hell? Let me just grab this for an email domain. And then I built a website and a blog and and then it just stuck. So <laughs> now at this point, and if I ever, ever said my name, most people are like, who? Like, oh, Disco Pop. Oh, the Disco yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Which it, I've, I've become way too used to the name because it's just attached to me that probably for people like yourself, when you get this invite, you're like, hey, you want to go on the Disco Posse podcast? And you're probably thinking... I definitely don't want to be on whatever. What the hell is this thing? <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, cool. Now it makes sense. So yeah, it definitely is one of those. Let's go ahead and listen to an episode or two. Uh, <laughs> see what this is about because does this go a direction I'm not sure I'm comfortable with? That's right. Very little to do with disco or posse's. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely living up to my name. So oh well, Dan, thank you very much, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to catching up again. Hopefully, somewhere in real life at a real conference. Uh, and again, congratulations on the new the new launch of your startup, your official little tiny Dan. Uh, you know, it, it's nice to have. That's a wondrous thing. And God, I could do a whole podcast. I'd love to hear your experiences doing that during COVID. I can't imagine was an easy experience, but, uh, uh, you know, those are, those are wondrous moments. And, and it, like you said, it makes you stop and be very strategic about not just business, but life. So it's, uh, it's nice to be able to open that up for people. Yeah. Happy to, I mean, there's, uh, there's a whole show about that because there's, there's, it feels like every day is is just um, trying to fight chaos. <laughs> yeah. Just when we think we're getting a little bit better, uh, she reminds us that uh, we're not. Yeah, yeah. You think you've got to figure it out. You read the book, and then now you realize it's. We used to joke like you'd go to the business section in the library, you know, or this bookstore and you'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, you can read all these things. I've read good to grade. I've read zero to one. I've read all these things. Doesn't make me good at running a startup. Same thing. You read all the bloody parenting books in the world. And then, oh, that little human will remind you that the book was wrong. <laughs> nice. Well, Dan, thanks very much. Thanks, Eric. Whoa, that's right, folks. It's at the end. And if you're still here, then thank you for listening. This has been fantastic. Dan Burkow was a really cool guest. I had a lot of fun with that. And if you want to find out more about all the great supporters, don't forget, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Check out DiabolicalCoffee.com. If you want to win deals, you want to learn how to be a better demoer, then go to VelocityClosing.com. Get the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos. That's it. That's the round down. I hope you had a great show. It's been an absolute blast. This is the Disco Posse Podcast.